we are slavery's end. Each morning we rise, wide awake and filled with purpose. We fight fearlessly in the name of justice because we believe in a better world and a God who moves us to make it so. We are the church beyond a building or a day of the week, relentlessly defending freedom. Not for some distant future, but for today. So that this may be the last generation to be owned, sold, or ignored in their suffering. And though we may be free, we are tied to those still held in bondage. And we will not go away until lives, communities, and nations are transformed until all countries protect all of their citizens. So, each day we rise again, knowing we are slavery's end. And we will never be free. But how can you fight that fight week after week and year after year, knowing that justice punches back, injustice punches back, and that evil is alive? Gary, why don't you, if you don't mind, I, I was at the funeral of a well-known Christian leader and was standing in line um, for what must have been an hour plus to greet his widow and family, and uh, Gary was in line next to me, and I basically asked that, how, how do you sustain this? And he said, this work is far too great to be done by any of us. This has to be God's work or it will not be done at all. And so my job is to get my people involved with God and God's work. And we talked, well, how do you do that? I said, IJM prays more than my church does. How, how does this work out? And, uh, and, and about 15 minutes into our conversation, another pastor came up and he was saying the same thing and his name was John Ortberg. And the three of us were talking for a half hour about how do we make our churches centers of justice, but more centers of prayer that turn to the God who makes both. Brothers and sisters, let's hear from Gary Haugen. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you, John. I will... Just avoid the wide open opportunity for hair comment that you provided there as a little exchange of grace together. 
It is such a joy to be here with you, and I have to share with you that I'm thankful that John has invited me to Menlo Church in a time of difficulty. The work of IJM is difficult because we were, we're taking on violence. But Menlo Church has, for more than 20 years, supported and helped us walk through really difficult days. Days of unbelievable stress. Even the murder of three of our number a, num a few years ago, where friends from this church made it possible for us to keep going. And we've just experienced your care and your support for decades, and it is just a special privilege and joy to come back and share something of what we've learned about difficulty and how to walk through it in times of great difficulty. This is an era of tremendous difficulty for the world. This is an era of enormous difficulty for our nation. It's a time of enormous difficulty and division and disorientation in our communities, in California, in our politics, in our culture, and I know in this church. So the question I'd like to have us consider today is whether or not Jesus offers us something stable and strong for days of difficulty. And I'm going to share some things that are so basic and so simple. And it will really be the Holy Spirit that will somehow allow this to be fitted for each one of us. So will you just pray with me for a moment that, and ask him to do that work with what is shared in these moments. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are your children. And we know of Jesus that he is the one who has the words of life. And there's no one else to whom we can go. And so, Father, we place ourselves in your presence and ask that you would, by your spirit, speak to us that which is fitted for our own individual, personal heart and soul today. And we ask for this miracle in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in times of heartbreaking confusion and disorientation, what clarity can followers of Jesus stand on? Or are Christians just as confused and disoriented as everybody else? Or worse, is Jesus confused and disoriented? I personally don't think that he is. And so maybe we, his followers, don't need to be either. But I think it does seem to require a return to our most basic orientation as to our purpose as, G as followers of Jesus, as Christians. Why are we here? Why do you and I exist? Jesus has an answer to that question. But an, it is an answer that makes zero sense to the world and zero sense to our intuition as those who have a fallen nature. And here it is. 
The reason that we are here on earth is to be agents of Christ's redemption in broken lives and in a fallen world. Put another way, the people of God are most who they are meant to be when the world is least as it should be. The people of God are most who they are meant to be when the world is least as it was meant to be. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus tells his followers that they are the, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, which sounds great until you realize that light finds its purpose and its power in darkness. And salt, which of course was a first century preservative, finds its power and purpose in decay. So here Jesus is trying to help his followers find their footing by helping them find their redemptive purpose in a fallen world. Where our purpose can be clear and where our expectations can be clear. For example, it's actually not confusing for a sailor to step onto a battleship. It's harder for sure than stepping onto a cruise ship, right? But the sailor has signed up for it. He's trained for it. He actually finds his purpose in it. He would actually be confused and disoriented if he was stepping onto a cruise ship and if he was handed a pina colada, right, and was, you know, shown to the lounge chair. The soldier, sailor, would be confused and disoriented by that. Similarly, the holiday traveler in the Hawaiian shirt who accidentally goes down the wrong pier and finds himself on board a battleship. He's going to be utterly confused, disoriented, and consumed by anxiety. He's standing in his flip-flops and in his fanny pack next to the sailor with the flak jacket and the combat boots on. Both are on the same ship, but feeling very different about their circumstances because they have completely different expectations based on their purpose and their preparation. None of this is to say that Christians are only meant to live grimly wallowing on, in all that's dark and decaying in the world. Quite the opposite. For as we'll see in a moment, the only way to sustain our redemptive role in the world is by drinking deeply from life's beauty and goodness and joy and abundance. Jesus invites us to experience, to experience the chaos, confusion, and heartache of our world very differently based on an orientation of purpose and a superpower of spiritual preparation. As to our orientation of purpose, it is meant to be singularly redemptive, which means God must send us to where things are wrong. The people of God are most who they are meant to be when the world is least as it was meant to be. I think of this as the difference between an airbag in a car and a cup holder in the car. Cup holders 
genius invention that didn't come till the mid-80s. I mean, what took human beings so long to think of this? But cup holders serve their highest purpose when everything is going just right in the car. You and your best friends or with your family are heading up to Tahoe for a long weekend. For some reason, there's no traffic on I-80. I grew up in Sacramento, so I know what this is all about. The right song has just come on the playlist, and right next to you is your perfect beverage in the cup holder. Everything is just right. In that perfect moment, the cup holder is everything it was meant to be. Now the airbag, by contrast, serves its highest and best purpose when everything is going most desperately wrong in the car. At the point of high-speed collision, when steel is crushing in and chaos is hurling soft bodies into hard objects, this is the moment the airbag lives for. To rush in and not away from the chaos. To place itself between the violence and the vulnerable and to save lives. In a fallen and broken world, Jesus says we are meant to be the airbag and not the cup holder. And as parents, in one way that I've thought about this, am I raising cup holders or airbags? Because if you think about it in a fallen world, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good? Jesus says to us, you're the plan. You are the light of the world. But how fallen, really, should we expect this world to be? Well, when Jesus tells his iconic Good Samaritan story, we all know this story, his example of a neighbor in need is what? It's a man who's been grabbed by robbers, stripped naked, beaten, and left for dead. That's your neighbor. The Good Samaritan story is about our central calling to love others. But notice, it's not a cute story. Jesus is setting an expectation about the kind of world into which he is sending us to love. But also note this. Secondly, Jesus is expressing an expectation about the kind of love you and I are capable of. Jesus believes you and I are actually capable of supernatural love. He thinks we are capable of heroic airbag love that moves into the pain and the peril. Now, that sounds kind of inspiring in a certain way and also, like, terrible. But this is what makes the love Jesus calls us to supernatural. It's a love that is above and beyond what human nature can do, a love that only comes through a spiritual transformation of us by the Holy Spirit. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus does give us a really clear example of natural love in the priest and the Levite. Right? In the story, they move away from the pain and the hurt. That's natural. They are looking for their purpose where? 
in Jericho, where obviously things are going to be right. And they're probably very nice people in Jericho. The Samaritan, by contrast, manifests a supernatural love that moves into the pain, that moves into the man left for dead. But why is this supernatural love so important to Jesus? I think it's because it is supernatural acts of love that end up pointing to God and giving him the glory. Because the quality of love is so manifestly beyond what humans are naturally capable of. So let's make this practical. What does this kind of supernatural love look like? Well, as you know, I work with International Justice Mission. And over these many decades, these incredible followers of Jesus who now are spread across the globe. IJM now has over 1,200 indigenous staff members who follow Christ and live and work in some of the poorest communities in the world. And as the body of Christ, they lean into some of the darkest and most violent evil in our world. And as the video was showing, one of these evils is the evil of slavery. But in the Philippines right now, Christians are taking on the nasty scourge of online sexual exploitation of children. It's a sickness that has gone viral, actually, during the pandemic. Sexual predators in London or New York or Moscow pay criminals in the Philippines to direct the online sexual abuse of vulnerable children. Children like eight-year-old Marco, who lives in a slum, but he's under the control of an abusive relative. And then this child abuse is then sent online around the world for sick consumers. Now, this crime has actually exploded during the pandemic, and the Philippine authorities get thousands of referrals of these abuses from around the world every month. At a time in which many countries, including our own, are faced with the problems of police abuse, Christians in Kenya are facing a particularly terrifying plague of police violence. Abusive police routinely round up poor citizens and threaten to throw them in prison if they don't pay a bribe. And during the first few months of the pandemic, three times as many citizens in Kenya were killed by police enforcing the COVID quarantine than, were, than who died from the actual disease itself. Some of you friends might remember that, as I shared, that IJM staff were murdered by police in Kenya some years ago. In South Asia, Christians are trying to address the suffering of millions who are trafficked illegally into slavery. Pachiyama here, for example, was trafficked into a rock quarry, where, where as a young teenager, she's forced to work seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, doing this back-breaking work in a medieval rock-crushing compound. The owners use terror and sexual assault to enforce their will over scores of enslaved people. And as the world now knows, there are millions of people in our world who live literally in slavery. Of course, in advanced economies like our own, the body of Christ is also facing challenges of violence and injustice in our own backyards. The global Me Too movement has surfaced the reality of sexual abuse and misconduct against women and girls in all kinds of social economic circumstances. Altogether, the pain and the upheaval at home and abroad is daunting. It's even overwhelming. So where do you and I begin? 
I suggest we begin by returning to the clarity of the scriptures about why we exist as God's people in the first place. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We know, of course, that these works don't save us. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. But we know these works bring glory to our Father in heaven when they manifest His supernatural love in us. And this is why we are here. So what does that supernatural love look like? And where does it come from? As I see Christians in the poorest communities battling darkness and evil, I see three supernatural qualities in their love. And this is where I will say I will be offering the simple, most basic things you can imagine, and I'm just counting on the Holy Spirit to allow it to speak to us in our individual situations. So here they are. First, they are supernaturally courageous in their compassion. A supernatural willingness to draw near to the suffering and to be touched by it. When IJM's undercover investigators in the Philippines first exposed that children in the slums were being sexually abused online for paying pedophiles around the world, no one wanted to look at that. No one wanted to talk about it. It was too grotesque and shameful. But soon, IJM found that there were churches and church leaders in the Philippines who were willing to sound the alarm. They spoke about it from their pulpits and began to pray together by the thousands. And these prayers led to then the second quality of supernatural love that I see, and that is what has been your theme for some time here now, a supernatural generosity. And in this situation in the Philippines, a supernatural generosity was needed because there was a problem. IJM and the authorities could rescue kids from online sexual abuse, but then no one wanted to take care of the kids. Think about this. Rescuing hundreds of kids, but now what? No one wants to take care of them. Why? Because a lot of the victims were babies and boys, and no one ha knew how to deal with this. But several church communities, followers of Jesus, stepped forward into the mess. With meager resources, they opened up assessment centers and care facilities for a totally unfamiliar form of abuse. They took great risk in saying yes to the need before they had all the resources or the know-how to meet it. But now, as hundreds of children have been rescued by IJM and the authorities, the Christian community in the Philippines has pioneered aftercare facilities and programs that are now used as a model around the world. We have so much hope for this fight against this evil in the Philippines because we've already seen other forms of child sex trafficking measurably reduced by between 75 and 86% in only a four-year period of time. It turns out that Jesus takes small offerings of supernatural love, small offerings of supernatural love, for example, like a little boy who has, a low, has some loaves and fish, and Christ does, can multiply them into miracles at supernatural scale.
Likewise, in South Asia, Christians have brought hope by manifesting this super generosity in providing a pathway to dignity and independence for those who were once held as slaves. So when IJM and local authorities were able to rescue Pachyama and dozens of other victims from slavery in that rock quarry, the survivors faced utter destitution because floods destroyed their mud houses and swept away all their meager possessions. But then it was a coalition of churches and Christian students who rallied their own resources with community and government support to provide permanent housing running water, electricity, and roadworks. Not only now, not only does Pachiyama and her family, are they able to thrive, but now she is the general secretary of an organization she's founded called the Released Bonded Laborers Association. She's grown the RBLA to more than 1,500 members and led that association in rescuing hundreds from slavery. One survivor leader hundreds rescued. Jesus' miracle of scale from a small offering of love and compassion. For Pachiyama and our community, this is the legacy of what happens when Christians respond to brokenness and pain with supernatural generosity. The third quality of supernatural love I see is supernatural persistence. These Christians manifest a love that just doesn't go away. Children healing from online sexual abuse in the Philippines need love for the long haul, typically for five to ten years or more. So who has the persistence to do that? The local church can, because the local church is a permanent presence in the community. Churches in the Philippines commit to these children's care and healing for years, taking care of their trauma therapy, spiritual nurture, schooling, medical needs, therapy for their families, livelihood training. And here's the real test, I think, of supernatural persistence. They stick with it even when it's not appreciated, even when traumatized kids lash out at them, even when all the effort seems to fail as of course, sometimes it does. But what does not fail? The persistence of their love. This is supernatural. And likewise in Kenya, churches in the slums have signed up to advocate for men who've been illegally detained. They do the scary work of actually confronting the authorities for this abuse. But they also do the long-term work of supporting families Families who've been thrown into destitution when the breadwinner of the family has been murdered or thrown into prison. It's followers of Jesus in Kenya who make sure these families are seen, that they are cared for, that they don't go hungry, that they're not alone, that they are prayed for, for as long as it takes. So finally, where does this capacity for supernatural love come from? It's clearly the work of the Holy Spirit transforming his people into being more than they could ever otherwise be on their own. But I would suggest just three things that I've seen these Christians do to allow space for the Holy Spirit to get started. And then when they do these things repeatedly, they make the transformation unstoppable. 
These believers, one, take scary baby steps. Two, they pray. And three, they chase joy. First, scary baby steps. Because you and I were made for redemptive purposes, when you and I draw near to broken lives and in the fallen world, as you even think about it now, broken lives, a fallen world, as we draw near to that, the Holy Spirit will suggest a small, scary baby step of love. The trick, I think, is to take it. This is not easy, however, because you will hear other voices. Your fallen nature will suggest all the things you cannot do. And your spiritual adversary will suggest all the amazing things you can do later, when you're better prepared. But the Holy Spirit will suggest some baby step of love you can do now. But it will be a scary baby step. Because it's meant to take you to where you actually need God. This is necessary for us to authentically experience His power more than just our own and to experience His trustworthiness because that experience of Him is what will drive us to our next scary baby step. What's important to understand about our brothers and sisters in the Philippines and Kenya and Asia in the stories that I've shared is how scary every baby step has been for them. They're not different than you and I. Overwhelmingly, these are churches in poor communities serving with deep dignity on just very thin margins. Thin resources, thin training, thin line of survival. But lots of consecutive, scary baby steps have turned them into giants of faith. And as they take their scary baby steps, they do a second thing. They pray. They talk to God. Because the baby steps are scary. They actually need Him. And then he shows up, and he pours out his presence and power, and they pray some more because they are super thankful and because they want his help with the next baby step. They end up praying a lot. At IJM, of course, we've learned a lot from this, which is why, as John mentioned, our teams around the world stop all our work twice a day, every day, to pray for an hour. We tell God we're scared and need help with the latest baby step, and we thank him earnestly for how he carried us through the last one. Mother Teresa used to say she, she couldn't imagine doing her work of love for more than 30 minutes without prayer. Do you and I have a work of love that we can't imagine doing for 30 minutes without prayer? Finally, we've learned from these believers of, uh, from these believers of supernatural love to take, chase joy, to chase joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. So in ways I think that might surprise you, I find my IJM colleagues laugh louder and harder than just about any Christians I know. They dance and sing in celebration of beauty and life. They play and joke and shed all pretension. They worship with passion and authenticity the God who's proven himself to be good. And then they go back to work. In chasing joy, you and I too can be refreshed with the spirit for the next scary baby step of supernatural love. We've learned so much from these fellow Christians who are serving in such tough places.
And I can tell you straight up, as has been the case for several decades, they would be so encouraged to have your companionship in these struggles. Many of you friends here at Menlo have experienced that compassion, uh, that companionship rather, through your connection with IJM over many, many years. And IJM has actually been connecting the global church to these struggles for 25 years now. Thanks to you, more than 67,000 individual victims of violence and slavery have been brought to a place of freedom and restoration. Outside experts have studied IJM's work transforming justice systems in these poor communities, and they have found that millions have been effectively protected from ever experiencing this abuse in the first place. And now, after 25 years, IJM's teams and their partners have identified jurisdictions ripe for transformation where 500 million people in poverty can be protected from violence by the year 2030. This is a miracle of scale that Jesus seems to be preparing for the, uh, from the 25 years of these small offerings of love and compassion. If you'd like to join that fight, of course, your brothers and sisters in Christ would love to take scary baby steps with you, to pray with you, and to chase joy with you. These teams around the world would love for you to join them in helping protect the poor from violence, whether it's in the Philippines or Kenya or South Asia or all around the world. And they're super pragmatic people. So if you want to join them and in explore investing in the work with them, you can just pull out your phone. There's a link here at ijm.org Menlo, and you can see a way to just tangibly invest with them in this work or talk to IJM staff who are at a table in the lobby. Or also, if you have a friend who is, you know would just be so excited to think about a way to get connected to a miracle of audacity and scale like this, please just take that opportunity. It may be that just clicking on this connection to IJM and this work around the world is maybe just that next scary baby step. I close with this. These are difficult, divisive, disorienting times. But Jesus is not disoriented or confused. He's crystal clear and utterly unyielding in the sovereignty of his redemptive purposes in the world. And he is utterly determined to joyfully pursue these redemptive purposes through you and through me. Because the people of God are most what they are meant to be precisely when the world is least as it was meant to be. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men and women that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Kind Father, we've asked you to draw close to us in this time of difficulty and empower us by your Holy Spirit with clarity about why we're here and how we can be prepared by you to manifest your supernatural love in the world. Dear God, we just place ourselves before you 
and ask that you would do your work of transformation in us so that you might bring about that transformation that brings glory to you in the world. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.